You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, if you've got a Bible and you want to open to Luke chapter 1, that's where we'll be this morning. Um, several years ago, when my, uh, my youngest was born, uh, we were waiting to see, uh, we were taking some test results, and doctors kept saying, something's going on, we're not sure what. I, I will fast forward and tell you she's wonderful and she's healthy, and all the doctors were wrong, and I was so glad. Um, but they, were, they did some, um, some pretty serious, significant testing to see if she was, which kind of life she was going to have. Was she going to have a very different, very challenging life with something really going on? And um, they said, we'll call you, and I don't remember the time frame, but it was a few weeks uh, and, and you can imagine for those weeks, this was when we had a home phone, if you remember that, uh, and for those few weeks, every time the phone rang, we knew it might be something life-altering that we were going to hear on the other line. And, uh, and so we would just be hanging out, having a good time, and then the phone rings and just hearts just sort of leap up into your throat. Now, the timeline passed, and nobody called to tell us I'm sorry, it's taking longer than we thought, nothing. And so it's just going and going and going. And finally, I remember I, w- I was a youth pastor. I went to the, Nikki just said, just go to, go to camp. It's a big camp, and I was I'm really helping to run it. She said, just go. And I remember being on the bus to camp with like 300-something kids, well, not all in one bus. We had a whole train of buses. And I look at my phone, and I see it's Nikki, and someone was talking to me, and I said, shut up. And then I got my, and then I held it up, and she's just in tears and just says, everything's fine. And uh, I heard that, and I thought, like, I so wanted to be there and just, like, collapse and just pray, and I didn't know what to do. So <laughs> you know the story. I, I stood up, and on the bus, they had those little overhang things. I stood up and just smashed my head, and it started bleeding a little bit. And then I looked around, and most of the people on the bus didn't know the whole story, and her, her like, Mother's Day Out teacher was right there, this 21-year-old young woman, and I, and I just, all of a sudden, I went, ah, and I just, like, fell on, I didn't know what to do, I just fell on her, my head's bleeding, she's trying to figure out what's going on, and I was going, oh, Miguel's okay, she's okay, and she goes, well, I, I can't understand what you're saying, and I thought, how can she not understand? I'm saying, Abigail is just fine, you know? And then I was like, oh, look okay. And she said, I think you're saying Abigail's okay. And I said, yes, she's okay. And she went, oh, that's, that's great. Get your bloody head off me, but that's great. <laughs> but I remember like that whole time, like it, there's nothing, life sort of stops to some degree when you're waiting on significant news like that. And we were just waiting and waiting and waiting to just get an answer so we could start moving forward. And I just, we were just sitting there just waiting for peace. We were just waiting to be content again. We were waiting to get this answer so that we could move on. And um, you might be today even waiting for peace. You might be, there's something maybe in the world that's got some discontent in your life, maybe some worries in your life, and you might just be waiting and waiting and wondering, any second now, God, would be great. I'm waiting for peace. The great news is that we actually have examples of this, where godly people have waited for the peace of God. In fact, in the, in the New Testament, right, in, um, right at the beginning of the New Testament, a couple thousand years ago, the people of God were waiting as well. They were waiting for the uh, promised forerunner that would precede the Messiah, and that Messiah was going to bring peace. 
So the, the, very, the very last verses of our Old Testament, how we have it in our version, um, Malachi chapter 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, or it really means one like Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now we know that this forerunner, one who came in the spirit of Elijah, was John the Baptist. And he was the one that's going to come in the New Testament, and he's not the exciting one. The reason he's exciting is because he is going to say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that he is going to point to the Messiah who would come as the Prince of Peace. If you remember in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And do we ever stop and wonder about um, why, did, why did Israel, why did they miss Jesus largely? Why did so many of the leaders miss Jesus when he came the first time? And probably we go, well, I wouldn't have missed him. I would have recognized him immediately. There he is. I, I get my Old Testament added up, yada, da, 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 and there he is. Why did these fools not get it? Here's part of the reason why is because what they were hoping for from this Messiah who would bring peace was going to be this idea of restoring theocratic Israel because they were under Roman oppression. But if you know the, um, like, let's be first century, for, let's be first century Jews for just a moment and think about the promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation about 2000 BC, that from Abraham would come a great nation. And then you've got 500 or so years later, you've got the Israelites and they're enslaved in Egypt. They finally do become a nation. Maybe this is the beginning of it. They're ruled uh, by judges, and then they don't like that, so they start to be ruled by kings. You've got Saul, David, Solomon, and a couple after them, and then um, the kingdom is split in two now. And the northern kingdom gets taken captive by Assyria, and the southern kingdom gets uh, taken captive by Babylon. So you can see they have really gone through it up to this point. And then the southern kingdom finally did get to return from captivity because uh, the Persians came in and overthrew the Babylonians, and so they got to get back into their uh, southern kingdom, but they sort of lived in the shadow of the Persian Empire all of their days. 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments. You have Israel, all that they just went through, and now they're living in the shadow of the Persian Empire. The Greeks come in and overthrow them, so they're kind of this vassal nation in a sense to the Greek Empire. They're under the thumb of the Greeks. And then the Romans come in and they overthrow the Greeks. And so now the New Testament opens, and all of a sudden you've got the Romans, and you have no nation of Israel. You just have these faithful Israelites that are trying to follow God. And so you can see why after 400 years of silence and everything that they've gone through, you can see why they're going we're waiting for him to reestablish us as a nation. And they thought the Messiah would come, kick Caesar off his throne, and reestablish the kingdom. That's what they thought was going to happen. To give you a perspective, 400 years of waiting, uh, about 400 years ago, uh, Shakespeare had just died, if that gives you any idea. It would be about 150 years till the Declaration of Independence. Um, now, I, I did the best I could here. There's 195 countries in the world how many of them 400 years ago had acquired sovereignty? 400 years ago, out of 195, how many of them had acquired their own sovereignty? 23. That's a long time ago. That is a long time to wait 
in the first century. That's a long time with nobody that's experienced, um, you know, certainly the enslavement in Egypt and the miraculous freeing, and no one's experienced what happened with Babylon and how they were miraculously freed, and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and God is silent for 400 years until a man named Zechariah was on his priestly duty one day in the temple. And the angel Gabriel went to Zechariah, who was married to Elizabeth, and said they would have a child. And not just any child. This would be the promised forerunner, John the Baptist. In Luke 1, it says this, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Zechariah is a priest in his one time in the temple, and as he's um, giving the sacrifice, the angel appears to tell him this. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, listen to this, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He couldn't be more clear. Zechariah, it's time. Your wife is going to have the forerunner to Messiah. And then Zechariah questions the angel, which is kind of odd. He's giving the sacrifice. An angel appears and says he speaks for God, and he questions him, and he says, uh, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And it says, and my wife is <coughs> advanced in years. I like how he said that. Now listen, this guy, he's, he's Jewish. He should remember the story of, Ab of uh, Abraham and Sarah. You remember what happened with them? There's going to be a great nation from you. The same thing. He's going, we're old. We can't have kids anymore. And he goes, mm, okay. And they had kids, and, and um, the Jewish people came from him. And here he is with the same doubting. Doubting him, which is doubting God's message. And so the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this, and it literally says euangelion, which is the word good news or gospel. He says, I am bringing you this gospel, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day which these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled, fulfilled in their time. So he can't speak now until John is born. Well, to fill in the gaps of the story, about six months later, Gabriel goes to Mary. Mary is related to Elizabeth, so she goes to tell Elizabeth that she is going to bear the Christ child. And then Elizabeth gives birth, and eight days later, the baby goes to be circumcised. And this is where it's time to name him. And Zechariah still can't speak. And they assume that the name is going to be baby Zechariah, because that's what dad's name is. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And they go, you don't have any relatives named John. You're supposed to name somebody after your relatives. You don't have any relatives named John. And so they go, be quiet. And they go to Zechariah and they say, what is his name? What is his name? What is his name? And Zechariah writes down, his name is John. That's John the Baptist, which is now showing Zechariah, I believe, the message of God. And his mouth opens and he's able to to speak. Make no mistake about what is happening. Zechariah is silent and now speaking that the forerunner is here. God has been silent and God is starting to speak again. 
In fact, Zechariah's name is Zakar Yah. Zakar is remember, and Yah is like Yahweh. It means God remembers. And that's who he uses to say, I haven't forgotten about you. As you have been laying in wait, I have not forgotten. Now, this is what Zechariah says after that. <clears throat> it's in Luke 1, 67, and it has two parts to it. The first part, it's called the, uh, the good word, the benedictus, and so the benedictus, and that's actually the first word in the whole thing as well. Um, <clears throat> and the first one is he, he praises God for Jesus who is to come, Messiah who is to come. And then the second part of it, he praises God for John's role in pointing people to Jesus. So verse 67 says this, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, <clears throat> excuse me, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited, he has come to earth in the form of a man and he has redeemed his people. When you redeem something, there is a price that must be paid. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is somebody from the line of David, as was prophesied. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. This is the one. Jesus is the one that was foretold over and over and over through the New Testament, or the Old Testament. This is the one that they were laying in wait for. He is here. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So you can see there is a, there's a sort of circumstantial piece that he's talking about here as well. And then it says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, that's in Genesis 15, um, to grant us, we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. They are given freedom to do what? To serve God. That's what freedom is for. And then it says, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, there's hints here of a national rescue of people. He's saying we assume with Jesus being here that some circumstances are now going to change. And believe me, they did. The Messiah is on the scene. It didn't quite change in the way that they thought it was going to. But I see this, and I see what he is praying for, and I, I just want to make a point that it is good to say, God, would you change this circumstance in my life where I am discontent? Could you help me find peace in this world? Because sometimes what we tend to do is we tend to think this idea of just asking for peace to just change my circumstances, well, that's not really it. Life should be tough. I need, I need something deeper than that. But here he's saying, Christ has come. Christ has come. And so he, he is praying, because peace really comes in these two forms. One is because, it may come because circumstances move a bit. Things that are causing us discontent change. I think the issue is, for many of us, this is about the only way we really think of peace. Is my life going okay right now? It's the only peace that we tend to know, and there's something so much deeper we actually share this with people who are not believers. Do you know this? Sometimes we talk about peace in the exact same way, that all it is is just moving circumstances so we can go, oh, life's good again. And that's great. But there's so much more. We lose a job, pray we find another one. Relationship troubles, maybe with adult children, pray, pray, pray that God would bring peace in that relationship. That's a good thing to do. Are you at odds with somebody in your life? Pray that God would do a work 
and be healing in that relationship. That peace can be good, but there's a big flaw with it. I don't have peace because I lost my job. Oh, good, now I got another job, so now I have this worldly peace, but now you know better than anybody that that job could go away because you have evidence that a previous one did. And so this job doesn't bring the peace that you might think it would. And on and on and on. There has to be a bigger peace than just kind of the moving of chess pieces to make our life good. And there is. And now he turns to talk about John. Notice the subordinate role that John the Baptist is going to play to Jesus. Verse 76, and you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He's subordinate to him. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's subordinate to him. You're preparing his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Listen to what Christ came to do. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's good stuff. Listen, what he just said is he's talking about the dawn is coming. The sun rises here. You've seen the beginning of the, the, the uh, Lion King, you know, where it's like this dark screen and then it's and it starts and then like the sun just starts to rise and all of a sudden it just goes boom and it just starts to put out light over everything and it just goes, it just blows through the darkness, pierces the darkness and illuminates everything. That's the image that he has here. The sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the way of peace. You talk about sitting in darkness in their day. You have in, in Luke 1, earlier on in Luke 1, it just has this little note, in the days of King Herod. And we go, that's fine. I'm sure that just is giving us a date. Um, king Herod was this king over Judah in the day. Uh, he's not Jewish. He's there for 44 years. He's this um, oppressive king who is a puppet of the Roman Empire who was oppressing Christians. And he gets this rap for like, hey, he rebuilt the Jewish temple though. He also rebuilt a whole bunch of pagan temples all over. This wasn't a good guy. In fact, he was so paranoid that someone was going to try and take his throne, he started murdering people who he thought might want his throne. He is killing his own family members. That's the ruler that they have. And then you have these Christians, these people that are coming, or these, these Jews in that day, they're, they're saying, we cannot worship Caesar, we worship Yahweh and him alone. And so Rome hated them. That's the dark times that they are living in, sitting in the darkness and the shadow of death. The Old Testament language, there's a couple ways. Like the shadows, if you picture all these pagan temples around, the idea was they'd like to walk kind of in the middle of the day when the sun's overhead because you didn't want to walk in the shadow of those pagan temples that it would cast. And in the Old Testament, when it talked about shadows, it was used mainly about prisoners. And so the imagery here is they are imprisoned here and having to walk in a place that is thoroughly utterly against the God that they love. And Zechariah is saying, even in the greatest of darkness, there can be peace. Even in the grossest of times, Christ can bring light. God can change circumstances to kind of bring that circumstantial peace. But ultimately what he came to bring 
You got this, the salvation, the tender mercy of God. He can guide our feet into the way of peace. The idea is that we can have, and what Jesus came to bring, is peace between us and God. Peace in knowing that our deepest needs as human beings are met. The peace of knowing no matter how horrible of a thing I have just done, there is a God who stands ready to forgive the repentant heart. No matter your background, your education level, no matter how insecure you are, no matter how much of a failure you think you are, no matter how many times you screw up everything, no matter how unlovable you think you are, you can have peace with God because of what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of peace. That's the peace that nobody can take from us. And this passage, I just think, clears up so much for me because you've got these two types of peace. You've got this um, circumstantial peace in life, and then you have this salvific peace of I am saved because of my belief in Jesus Christ. Those two are not interchangeable. Sometimes we might behave as though they are. Like we've got our, our faith, for example, and then uh, all of a sudden there's something that happens that stirs up our circumstantial peace. And, and Christians, listen, this is a temptation, isn't it, to go, uh, I'll come back to this God thing, this Christian thing, my spiritual growth later. All of my heart and my mind and my efforts and my energy and my conversations and everything are about reconciling this so it might one day bring me peace. I need to fix this situation. And oftentimes we can neglect who we are in Christ in the midst of a time where we need peace and just focus on the thing to remedy, 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 remedy and neglect and think, we'll get back to that later. We have to remember what comes first, the peace that God brings through his son, Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, if we're walking through life and there, there's no peace out there, things are just hard. You're waiting for the phone call from the doctor like we were. You're waiting for the job news. There's layoffs. Is it going to happen to me? You're waiting for, I hope my kids call me again. While we're wrestling through that, we might wonder, God, why are you not making this work? And why are you not making it work right now? Okay. Sometimes when we have all this peace in the world or perceived peace in the world, all of a sudden, it might sort of kill the part of us that realizes that this is fragile. If we're, everything is so great out here, it might make us forget. We are so prone to wander and prone to forget that if everything's going great out here, we might forget, oh wait, the true peace that I need in my life is the one that comes from being a son or a daughter of the King of Kings. And so I wonder if there's not times, and as I look back in my life, this is true, and some of you would say this too, that um, sometimes... All the stuff is stirring out here and it doesn't get reconciled because if it did, I might ignore Jesus. God says, I want so much better for you. This stuff will not fulfill and never will fulfill. There was a, um, an article in the Wall Street Journal probably 10 days or so ago, something like that. And um, <clears throat> the question was, they asked a whole bunch of people, um, uh, how much more money do you need to have in order to be content or to be happy or to be at peace? Um, <clears throat> let's see. And their summary was something like, people are often convinced their lives would improve if only they could climb a few for lungs on the income ladder. Um, let's see. Exactly how much more money 
do we think we need to finally be happy? That's the question they asked. And it says, a new survey from the financial services company Empower put the question, uh, put the question to about 2,000 people. And here's what they did. They broke it into uh, income levels, and they asked people who make between this and this, how much more do you think you need before you'll be at peace, before you'll be happy, before you'll be content? And then they asked this next group and said, same question, how much more money do you need to make before you'll be at content? This group, this group, and they kept asking all these different groups. And, <clears throat> and here's what they found. They broke it into salary ranges and they said, Americans said that to be happy, they would need almost a 50% raise. Meaning, they asked people in this income level and they said, how much more do you think they need, you need? And they said, probably 50%. And then they went and they asked the people who had 50% more than this group, and they said, how much do you think you need? And they said, probably 50% more. And then they asked this people right here and they said, what do you think? About 50%, about 50%. And it just kept going and kept going and kept going. In the survey, most people said it would take a pretty significant pay bump to deliver contentment. The respondents, who had a median salary of 65000 a year, said uh, a median of 95000 would make them happy and less stressed. The highest earners, with a median income of 250000 gave a median response of 350000 And here's what they said. They said employers are planning on an average pay increase of 3.9% in 2024. This is for non-union employees, according to a survey from this consulting firm named Mercer. So everybody is saying, I need 50% more, and the plan is 3.9%. You're going to be, what is that, 46.1% discontent next year if this is where you're going to find your contentment. And they, they, they close it like this. Just how much happier a 3.9% or 50% raise would make any given person is hard to determine, researchers said. I love it when the world commissions studies that come to conclusions that Christians have known for centuries. There's never going to be enough. All I need is 50% more. Just give me 50% more. Now, I have to confess to you, I went down the rabbit hole a little bit because I knew this wasn't the only survey about this. And I started down and just looking at survey after survey after survey. And I found two things Two things in common. This is what it was. Um, how much do you need to be content in this world? And these are all things apart from God. How much more do you need to be joyful, happy, find peace? How much more money? How much more sex? How much more pleasure? How much more stuff? How much more esteem? How much more influence and power? How much more relational health? How much prettier do you have to be? How much more weight do you have to lose? How much better of a relationship do you need? And every single survey came back with the exact same answer. Just a little more. Every single one. There was only one item that I could find that threw their curve off. A few of the surveys that they didn't fit into this, you know what they asked? Religious affiliation, yes or no. And those that said yes had a much higher contentment than those that didn't. Just a little more. When we're not at peace in our lives, maybe it's because we've bought the line. We're just going for more, for more, for more. That's never going to fulfill us. And maybe it is God in his good tender mercies not satisfying that so he can satisfy the true peace that your soul needs. And he can guide our feet in the way 
of peace.